I think that there's an entitlement around open source that comes from like it's free software and like it doesn't really matter to me how I got to this the thing that I want to work like it should work. Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. My first introduction into the open source software space was through WordPress. Now, I started using WordPress way before I was ever deeply embedded in its open source software ecosystem. And that's actually how I got passionate about this topic. I just thought it was so interesting that I used WordPress for so long without really knowing how it was made and what powered it. That first introduction happened when Josh Pollock, a WordPress contributor and PHP developer, brought me on to help accelerate the growth of a product that he and his colleague David had created, Caldera Forms. That led into Josh and I creating a full-fledged software development company that we called Caldera Labs based on the flagship product that started it all. We created a handful of other products such as an open source A-B testing tool and a couple of other integrations for newsletters, Zapier, and other things that we had experience with. Josh understood the ecosystem in which we were selling free software, and eventually I did too. But a lot of people in my life didn't think my parents or people that I used to go to business school with. It didn't make any sense in the paradigm that we were used to, which was we had something that other people don't and we could sell it in exchange for money. So we're kicking off a three-part series on the main business models of open source software, starting with commercial open source software. And to help explain it, I thought, what better explanation partner than my former business partner? Hi, I'm Josh. Uh, I'm a PHP and JavaScript developer for the most part um, and dog enthusiast and like super nerd for, you know, software and open source and crypto and ecology. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where I'm from. And I currently work at a company called 10up that does a enterprise WordPress development as a lead web engineer. And my former business partner. Oh yeah, uh, I used to own a uh, own a um, small software company that built a open source commercial open source software company, and uh, which was acquired a few years ago by sort of a similar company in bigger scale, and and uh, worked there for a while before my previous job. Before we dig into the business model that we used to run, though, I wanted to touch base with Josh on something else I've seen in open source. And that's the idea of donation-based open source software. You've probably seen it. You put a cool Chrome extension on your computer or something else, and then you get a notification that says, hey, please donate. It helps keep the project going. Actually worked at a WordPress plugin that was totally donation-driven. That has its pros and its cons. And then that led to starting a couple different like commercial open source projects, one of which, you know, people used and took off for a while. What's your take on donation-driven open source products? Bad idea. Yeah, I should have started by telling you that he's not a fan. It sounds great. I love the idea. I absolutely love it. One of the things that I did at Pods 
was that um, I recalled that I had volunteered at a public radio station in Pittsburgh, um, WIDP, where you're trying to get people to be like, call in a donation, but really what they're looking for is recurring revenue. They want you to like become a monthly or yearly member and they like give you a tote bag or whatever. And they make you part of the community. Like you join the public radio station. It's like, what do you get for joining? Like a discount code. Like it's like, a you know, but you do feel like you're part of it. And it is true. Like those sort of things don't exist without a community. And so we try, we adapted that uh, into friends of pods, just like a fundraising that help businesses sponsor pods development and reach the customers of pods in some way in return. It's not like a one-to-one. It's still in that, like, it's not a sponsorship that you're really looking to make money off of. It's just a bad way to do business. Okay, so he's really not a fan. But he makes a good point. Business doesn't really work very well when paying is optional. That's when some economics concepts are going to come in handy. The first one I want you to think about is the concept of deadweight loss. Sounds fancy, but all it really means is there is an amount of money in between what we paid and what we would have paid. That amount, of course, varies on the consumer. If we're looking at the same product, I might be willing to pay $5 for it, but you might be willing to pay 10 Adding up all of those differences tends to give us the quantitative measure of deadweight loss. And you can probably imagine that when we're trusting people to open up their wallets with no requirement at all, we end up getting a lot of that. The other concept I want you to think about is definitely a term that has entered our regular conversations, but it is in fact an economics term, and that's the tragedy of the commons. If you're unfamiliar, that refers to the idea that when we have something that anybody can take advantage of, a lot of people will take advantage of it without helping maintain it. Think something like a park. Now the problem with that is, if we don't all chip in, then eventually we all suffer. But we all think that other people are going to suffer. That probably starts to sound familiar. It doesn't like it doesn't add up like nobody's really been successful at this. That's what I was about to ask. I was like, do we know of any donation based anything that has become sustainable? Uh, Leinster Wallace works for a foundation, nonprofit foundation as a full time developer of Linux because he doesn't want to make money. Like his goal is like he doesn't want to get rich off of Linux. He doesn't want to commercialize Linux. He's like not against other people commercializing Linux, but it's just his goal is to work on Linux core for kernel forever. And so he, he works for whatever foundation. And may, I'm sure he gets a decent whatever and operate. Like, I'm sure he can make more money working on Windows or Mac OS, right? But, like, that doesn't explain Linux. Like, he's not the only person writing Linux, right? Like, Google and Android, or Google, Android is doing it. Like, like, Canonical with Ubuntu and, like, IBM and these companies are doing the, a lot of the real development. They're not nonprofits. They have a business model. They're trying to sell servers. I don't know anybody who has. This hits at the core of one of the really interesting conundrums about open source software. Generally speaking, when a business, or as Josh said, not a nonprofit, relies on a certain piece of software or on any other sort of external resource, they have to make sure that they are protected for a situation in which the resource becomes unavailable or more expensive. 
However, we've seen examples of companies that are unaware of the way in which they depend on open source software. Alternatively, we are also seeing a lot of companies become very, very aware of how they're depending on open source software and making sure that they have a seat at the table. So which one is predominant? Talk about the generally speaking, undefined business risk that exists behind relying on 100% volunteer managed software, right? And how maybe we were closer to that risk um, in the past, but now we've either thrown massive amounts of resources at the critical infrastructure or we're not really thinking about it. A little bit of both. Babel.js is an example where people were getting paid to work on it, but it was just, there's now a lot of accusations. People aren't doing work and it's kind of like, come on, like there's more to work than just like go to Rio and writing code. Like, but it's still like, it was, it's an ongoing struggle to for this piece of JavaScript that is required to compile JavaScript. Like almost everybody, every website now, like is using this in their tool chain and servers are using this in their tool chain. And it was just kind of built by a few people. And some of those people just raised a bunch of money to build a Rome, uh, build tools. But they raised a bunch of VC money because they were tired of like raising money or being somebody working on like the non-actual money raising money product of their company. Okay, so that's donation-based open source software. Not really a business model, but important to mention when we talk about the challenges of executing a business model around open source software correctly. With that, we're kind of starting to bleed into the next bullet point, right? Which is, so let's walk away from, this is completely donation-based, please support us, we're doing this for free, and into commercial open source software, which sometimes felt like... <laughs> it's hard to tell the difference from the outside. But, like, I had the joy of telling people, oh, I, I, I sell free, I write for, and sell free software for a living. Yeah, I was there for a lot of that fun that Josh had. It just like watching their little brains break, right? It's very weird because now I have a job that makes sense to people. I like corporations come to us and ask for a website and then we have a lot of meetings and build them websites. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're taking something and you're selling it for more. Tracks, yeah. You're providing a professional service. Okay, that's funny, but what does it actually mean? I think that there's an entitlement around open source that comes from, I think, the, it is free. Like, it's free software. And, like, it doesn't really matter to me how I got to this, the thing that I want to work. Like, it should work. Like, that's not really my problem, what your business model is. It's always been my thing. Like, it might be, and then I should stop working. Like, I should stop being your customer. Like, some people's business models don't work for me, right? And you just say no. And, like, I think that it is hard to... The WordPress is an example of something where they're like, this is free, this is free, this is free. And I think that as, like, as somebody who's good at making things work and understands where the logical limitations are, if this should just work, I... I have this expectation of like, oh, like, well, we can help people get it fixed. We can help people across that line. Because like my job is being like, like I built the thing. I know it doesn't work, right? Like I know that's how every software project works is like it doesn't work and then you figure it out at the end. But I think that people get into an open source world without realizing they're in a developer space is what's happening. 
and now it's hard for me to empathize with those people who like have no context for what or for the situation they're in, right? And I think that's what's hard about when it becomes a consumer-facing thing, different than some product that has wrapped up open source technology and copied open web type things, innovation. And I think that's a friction I never really figured out what to do with. Let's take, I want to take, I want to make you take three steps back. Um, can you explain like I'm five, your quip about I make a living selling free software? How does commercial open source software work as you might explain to my mom? Yeah. So what we did was we distributed a free WordPress plugin, type in, type in Caldera forms to WordPress plugin screen and you have it for free. So we maintained and distributed something that was free. It was completely free. So not freemium version, not that it got limited. You could use it and you could fully use Caldera forms and just that. And then it's not, it's a complete product. Um, one of the mistakes that we made very early on was putting to making it too complete of a product. There wasn't anything to sell back. So, but what we did sell was like a MailChimp sign up. So people want to use it to build their mailing list charge for that. They want to collect payments through Stripe or PayPal, charge for that. It's a different additional features that some people need. Mark that as a subset of the commercial open source software business model, the add-on model. Um, and this is a model that's worked really well for some companies. WooCommerce uh, started out as an independent software company with three or four people and grew to be very big and then was acquired by Automatic. Um, it is like a very large e-commerce platform um, now. And they monetized it by selling add-ons that do different email marketing and payments and analytics. But the add-on model isn't the only way to have a commercial open source software company. There are companies out there that have no free complete product. Getting started with this free software has an upfront cost. And I competed directly with another open source form building software company that worked this way. So same, same sort of thing in gravity forms, like the leader in the space, definitely for sure. Um, they have a different approach to it. It's still GPL license, new general public license software, exactly the same license. They just sell it. They don't give it away for free. You download it for, um, uh, for money. So you're paying for access potentially when you sell, when people buy free software, but what they're really paying for is support and updates. So we sold like a one-year license and then you can keep using it, but if it breaks, that's your problem. And so I think that's been a lot of the business model for open source throughout the years is like potentially sell people access to some or all of the code, but then you sell them a year or two years of support in updates and because things break and things go wrong. Um, and I think that's a business model that if it takes off, works for a lot of people because you end up with a lot of recurring revenue. And if you're in a business like we were and you're serving people who build a website, they shouldn't have problems that much after the first year. Right. I've seen themes and other plugins and things like that, that they don't even sell you a year of support. They sell you like three months. The premise is that you'll have implemented it. And then if you need six months, like, wow, you took a really long time, give us extra money. Or it might be another thing. Like that's the, like, it might be a whole new like site that they're using it on. It might be 
um, a whole new challenge might be a redesign. And so I think that's a way to, all these are different models to get around the fact that you can't restrict the use of your code with these types of licenses. Um, and also it's just like, that's not why people come to WordPress. People do come to WordPress to have that control. So it, it's very much culturally wrong. And I agree with to like build kill switches in. Ah, that's the artificial scarcity that we learned about in the first episode. I told you developers really don't like that stuff. But I do think that's led to more people building open source plugins that are wrappers around APIs. All right. So what does that mean? When we're covering commercial open source software, we've gone over 100% donation-based projects, and we've gone over the kind that have a free flagship product and add-ons. We've also gone over 100% premium open source software projects. There's one more way, though. You can create open source software that calls out to something that isn't open source. It can be, but it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't really bother to deploy yourself when you can just pay someone else a monthly fee to use it. That's software as a service. And I push people a lot towards that because it's better as a developer. That's the other side of this, I think, from, uh, if we're going to talk about the economics of it, is that um, the technical debt is a huge problem. Like the support load and the technical debt become all you're doing if you're not careful. And having free customers expose technical debt that may or may not be affecting paid customers starts to come into this idea of it seems like a free customer is either zero, like neither positive nor negative value, but they should have this positive intrinsic value to you because they're not making you money. You can't point a dollar value. But you can say they're validating my product, right? People buy things that are used by lots of things. And people acquire things that are used by lots of things, like when they acquire businesses. Um, so it's social proof. And you want them to think like, oh, you're going like, to get good bug reports. And I think that's true in the beginning of any software project. This is why we do free early access for software projects is you just want to know what's broken. You want to get early adopters in there to tell you what's broken and to tell you what it should do. But I think there's a difference between an early adopter and like a consumer who needs a thing that works. Yeah, so going back to that, right? That's kind of where I cut in and said, wait, hold on, explain explain it to my mom. But going back to that is, yeah, there's a difference between the contributor and someone who is like, I am exchanging money for a good. I, I definitely felt like we had a lot of that with Caldera forms, right? And we kind of had to educate around that. I don't know. What? I think that's hard because like Sean would just DM me when things went wrong with Caldera forms and I'd be like, great. And he'd give me like the most detailed, you know, and Sean's like my friend, like he's been, stayed in my house. I've been to his house, you know, like we hang out. like, And so when things go wrong for him with my software, he like DMs me very like detailed. Like when we were doing this, he would like send me error logs and like exactly what he could to break things. And that's a super value. It's just like, okay, you can give me free information about my product and how to like, why it's breaking for you. But that's very different from somebody saying, I have a problem, it doesn't work. And even with somebody who, with anybody, you start to, I think what we saw was a divergence between what the free users and what the paid users needed. 
And I think at that point, you do start to get into investing in the wrong technical debt, things like that. Um, and so it's tricky. It, it's a business model that clearly can't work. Like, I, like, I'm sorry, like we're surrounded by companies that have succeeded at this. We were talking about GIF before uh, we started recording. They made a decent amount of money doing a free plugin and selling add-ons. And then they just got acquired. And, and a good acquisition. They made money and they uh, are um, like working on it. Like they have more of it resources now and they're still like all together. Like I'm excited for them. So we're seeing a lot of examples of successful commercial open source software companies. Already, this business model is innovative. And then in addition to that, there are subsets of it being created. The next question is, how do we start to outline what makes this business model successful? How do we create a template to be replicated by other companies? Josh and I talked about some of the factors that make commercial open source software companies successful. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of those factors are just about the same as other more traditional business models. And they made it work in WooCommerce and Gravity Forms and Ninja Forms. Right, all these companies made it work. And I think we're talking about a lot of companies that were earlier. I think that people who are first movers get great advantage. Like that's just basics. Um, and it becomes harder as time goes on to break into these spaces. Um, WP Forms did it. That's another open source form building software company that focuses on WordPress websites. But with tons of like, they're a part of Awesome Motive, which has a ton of other products that they can cross promote with. And um, that's not a thing that independents can do. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you think led to, or broad question, what's your take on late entrants that succeed? Like, can people still go into commercial open source software and succeed, in your opinion? Yes, I think so. This is a basic level lesson of biology that new things, new systems emerge when a niche is created. Like as soon as there's available and un unrealized energy in a niche, something will exploit it. And so products scale by getting really good at solving like the most broadest problem that they can reach. So like a product can solve multiple, you know, they're having success in many things. And the really successful ones get really good at doing the thing that can make the most money, right? Like that's, and so that exposes edges. If a company finds four or five things, you know, product that does four or five things well, and three of them make a ton of money, people who are there for the other two are going to go looking for something else. So I think there's always, in the forms, in forms, we had that opportunity. Um, Gravity Forms had a way of doing form building that like didn't, wasn't visual. And David Kramer started Caldera Forms with a very visual thing that he kind of intuited what page builders were about to be. And so it was this moment of, and then grab, and then Ninja Forms copied it and everybody else copied it. And that's also how like Ninja Forms got, like so ahead was copying uh, what we had done and what other page builders had done. But all of a sudden Gravity Forms, this incumbent had all this technical debt, had all this stuff they were working on and like everybody else was coming on and just like, doing a different type of interface and that made more sense because when gravity form started, there weren't page builders. 
people didn't think about WordPress with page builder in mind. And now they do. I think that Caldera Forms and NinjaForms would look more like a page builder. In the discussion of commercial open source software, we would be remiss to not go over one particular kind of business model that has really taken off. And that is the managed application. Like nobody, like WordPress was taking off before there was WordPress managed hosting. It's not like you couldn't get WordPress on the internet. It just took five minutes. Like you had to like download things and like FTP things. And like Pagely and WP Engine came along and were like, we can automate that and like give people buttons. And a whole new category was born. But they didn't invent attaching servers to the internet and letting people install WordPress on. They just made it easier. And I think there's always that. There's always a changing expectation that you can exploit. And there's always some, like the good thing about the like cultural changes I think that are going on where it's like less acceptable to be a shithead um, is that like, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be successful company, but not terrible. Like it's beyond my scale, but like imagine doing like Lyft or Uber, but like you treat like the uh, drivers like human beings. Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you saw the drivers as your primary customer. Yeah, and employees. Yeah, and and W two employees. Eh, let's just let's go all the way. Yeah, but I do think there are that right. Like, what about a project management app where, like, um, you know, the CEO did it <laughs> took like a strong stance against white supremacy when it was presented to him on a fucking platter. If this goes over your head, Google Basecamp, or maybe don't. But now. Like, Basecamp has decent software. Like, Basecamp 3 is not bad software. And, like, it's very different from most project management software. And, like, I don't know. Maybe that just created a niche. Like, I don't know if their customers actually care about what happened there. But maybe that does create a niche for that kind of, like, chiller project management system. But, like, I don't know. You're willing to, like, take the basic steps to defend people of color in your company. So that's the basic outline of the business models that exist. We also covered how they can be successful and some extra bits too, like what motivates someone to get into this and what's the kind of positive impact you can have. But the question that I'm really interested in is what's next? So we eventually did sell Caldera Forms, the product. And I think that's worth mentioning that it's, we did sell like the brand and the email list and the website. Um... And that's normally a lot of how these things happen is that they are product, you know, companies want other products. Um, and the people, we did, um, four of us did go, uh, didn't work there. Um, and two of us still do work there. Um, so it was definitely an acquisition that was about both like people and product. Um, unclear in that case, if it was originally, it was unclear if it was going to be like, well, we'll learn from them or we're going to shut down the product. And then the answer was to shut down the product. And like, that's one of the things you do with competitors is you take their good people and shut them down. And, you know, it was discussed. Does it make sense to support to and have a different audience? And of course, with any discussion of both the present and the future, we can always review what we can be doing better. In this instance, there's opportunity within commercial open source to make pricing more sustainable and subsequently make people's lives a little bit more sustainable. One of the mistakes that we made very early on was putting two, making a two complete product. There wasn't anything to sell back. This goes back to that idea of dead weight loss. 
When working on open source software, it's pretty easy for creators who maybe aren't economists to think, well, I haven't paid anything other than an internet connection and my time into this, so it can't be that expensive. And then the software is woefully underpriced. We know a lot about the psychology of price. But in this conversation, there's two key ones that I want to highlight, which is one, price communicates quality. Whether that's right or wrong is a different conversation. We tend to think that expensive things are better. A successful commercial open source software company has to keep that in mind. Then there's the demand theory that simply says, don't price things just what they cost to make. Price what the market's willing to pay for them. Minimize that deadweight loss. When it comes to commercial open source, that's good business, but maybe even more importantly, it's sustainable open source development. I think that there's an entitlement around open source that comes from, I think the, it is free. Like it's free software and like, it doesn't really matter to me how I got to this, the thing that I want to work, like it should work. Like that's not really my problem, what your business model is, has always been my thing. Innovative business models surrounding open source software are propping up everywhere, but a big conversation is the sustainability and well-being of the people involved. In simpler terms, if you're working really hard on software and not getting paid enough, you're probably stressed out. We definitely went through that. We reached multiple places where we weren't willing to keep going on this, right? It's very weird because you have to like present, you have to be very honest um, about what you're doing and you have to like think back over what you've done and like um, put a value on people and put a value on like the thing that you've built and like what could be done with it. And I don't know, like I think it, it was an interesting experience for me um, that I think I wish wasn't so fucking complicated. Like everything about running a business shouldn't be complicated. I'm very much in a believer in like the power of like meeting a few people like wherever and on the internet and fucking around and like trying to build something. But yeah, we hired somebody on Twitter. Yeah, we really did. My friend's mom was pretty confused. And um, did incredible work, became the lead developer of the product and is now one of the main developers of like our competitor, at the time. like one of the most successful companies doing this type of product. I think working remote allows that. Um, I think that we struggled a ton with like the, like just running a business and everybody struggles with having like employees across um, multiple states and countries. It's just a nightmare. I really believe there's so much human potential that is untapped in this world that you can see in like informal internet stuff. Just the creativity that happens when like, people are able to work like like TikToks where you can like talk back, like what's that called where it's a split screen. Like how cool is that? That just random people are making art together. Like that way. There is so much create and open source is an example of this where when in the open source is filled with bullshit and barriers. There's so, you know, there's so many barriers, but, but it happens. And, and look at like um, science is massively has become massively distributed. Thanks to the internet. 
And that's why you're able to like design a COVID vaccine in like a month or whatever it took. I'm utterly convinced that there we haven't seen like what's exciting about the internet yet and that there's so much potential that is like trapped because it's you do kind of need a company at some point to make software like if i'm going to sell software there needs to be a like an entity that signs up for an e-commerce platform and like when there's money there needs to be and like that's hard like you and i struggled with that trying to work with people overseas is so complicated and i think that the more that technology can unlock that like that's the human creativity that I'm excited about. I think that's probably a good place to end. Because mm-hmm. if not, then I'll have to ramble on about blockchain. Being right, I was like, we're starting on blockchain, and uh, somebody actually knows what they're doing. Um, you know what? Fuck it. Tell me something you're excited about when it comes to blockchain. I'm excited about the idea of being able to put some of the con- of the like businessy type stuff where it comes to exchanging money into a system that doesn't rely on contracts and and it will still rely on loss, right? Like I need to turn my crypto back into US dollars. Like I can't buy food with it. I can buy Bitcoin at the grocery store, but I can't buy food with Bitcoin. But there's a machine there and a bank across the street. But I physically can't walk into like, I can't like show them my Bitcoin, like MetaMask and like get groceries. So I think what's interesting about that is it means that it's still my responsibility to deal with my currency in a legal way, right? I have to offload it and like, I have to offer it. But I love the idea of people being able to do the rest of that in a collaborative way and have a smart contract that handles these things. GDPR is the example that I use of a policy that I agree with. GDPR is the European General Data Protection Regulation, which covers privacy law across the EU. This makes sense. We should have the right to know what data companies are collecting about us and ask them to delete it. But we didn't architect like web applications with this in mind. And so I can't, it's unreasonable to ask to have a transparent view of the MySQL database or whatever of a website. So I have to like just trust that they're giving me that information. That I have to trust that all of this like kind of computation behind what I'm owed and what I owe is all accurate. That makes me suspicious as like a relatively privileged person. And so the idea of making these unbreakable like records of who owns what and who's owed what and forcing it to be drained, like that's something that's excited to me, exciting to me. And the idea of next time I want to start a company. with somebody from South Africa, instead of being like, we can't, right? Because originally this was Josh and David and I was paying him by PayPal and stuff. And like, you know, we ended up coming to an agreement with him to give, to buy the properties that he had, that I had left him with. I was like, this is the way that I can, you can have leverage over me. That's dumb. It would have been, it would have been so much better if we could have just uh, pass both of our wallets into some into a contract that was sitting behind our e-commerce. Like, how cool would that be if you could go into a software project with somebody or whatever, and that software was sold in crypto, and it had agreed to distribute a percentage of the profits to your wallet. In terms of, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about, um, you know, decentralizing finance and open sourcing the software. Like, finance is already software. 
like Visa is a globally distributed piece of software. The thing that to me is really interesting is this idea of like an autonomous corporation or a DAO could um, function to serve those kind of things. And so when we talk about like infrastructure for the internet type projects that nobody's really ever going to make money off of, like you're not going to make money, maybe selling build tools for JavaScript. Maybe, I don't know, some people have raised some money for it. But I like the idea of a few people getting together and like having a way to seamlessly add people to it and remove them to it and other people can just send money into it. Yeah. And so when you ask all the questions that I'm asking in this season number one, you know, how do we make the labor market sustainable? How do we make these new business models make more sense? How do we make all this stuff make more sense? It's like, well, what if we had a technology-based solution for contracts? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.